and read together our sermon text. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Ben-Hamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the power of Eder. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which illuminates our, our soul, opens the, our spiritual eyes, opens our spiritual ears, so your Holy Spirit can communicate to us the thoughts that you want us to hear. Father, I pray that uh, uh, as we look at this text, that you would speak to each person here individually, speak to us collectively as a congregation, and I pray that the message that you have for us would be communicated today in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I've been working on this for a long time, and uh, during the past week, I kind of tore it up and started all over again. Um, there have been some events in the news, uh, as Chris mentioned, the, uh, the shooting in Florida. Uh, before that, there was a shooting in Kentucky. It was at a high school that a friend of mine had attended. And you can look back through the years, recent, even all the way back to uh, 9-11, Pearl Harbor, um, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And there's some sort of tragic event that, uh, that is put before us. But I didn't choose this text based on tragic events. Did it for another reason. I'm an old man, and we're a young congregation. Most of you here are close to the age of my daughters, and you parents have children that are close to my grandson's age. It's because of this variance in my age and your age that I picked the text for today's message. I chose these verses out of Genesis 35. They're usually not verses that you hear preached in church or taught in church. They're very obscure. They're not quoted very often. I taught a lesson on this passage to a young couples group a few years ago when I lived in Indiana. And at that time, I was a young widower raising my two daughters who were in elementary school. And in the class, I had friends, and these people had friends and relatives who were going through their own various difficulties. One young man was battling brain cancer. Others were having difficulties of other, other types, financial, family difficulties. They knew, for the most part, that life was difficult on an intellectual level. But their experience had not brought them through that. Most had never attended a funeral. 
Instead, they were attending the weddings of their friends and their brothers and sisters and family members. When you get my age, you've attended more funerals than weddings. I was moved at that point to teach these verses as a type of, of like an uncle telling his nephew about some things to watch out for, uh, kind of preparation for what might befall some of them. Today, I move to preach on these verses to encourage you in your faith for when those times come. Your faith will be tested at those times. And the story about Jacob provides us with a basis for that biblical encouragement. Today we're going to look at these verses together and discover six things about the journey of faith that we walk. Those six things are, first, that the journey is difficult. Second, fear is real. Third, despair is not an option. Fourth, do what needs to be done. The fifth thing is to mark the significance. And the final thing is to finish your journey. So let's begin with verse 16. Here we see that the journey is difficult. Verse 16 says, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor. Jacob, at this point in his life, is undergoing a transition in his walk of faith. Jacob and his family left Bethel and were on their way to Ephrath, better known to us as Bethlehem. Back in verse 1 of this chapter, God told Jacob to go live at Bethel and build an altar. God speaks to him in the place where he first appeared to him several years ago. God speaks to him again. He says, build an altar here at Bethel. Bethel is a place where God establishes and continues intimate communication with Jacob. It was a place where God had first appeared to him and told him that the promises that were his from his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac were going to be his. Now, Jacob is leaving Bethel with a large family and a pregnant wife. God didn't tell him to leave, but because Jacob's son had a run-in with a neighboring tribe, he felt it was best to get out of Dodge. If you look back in chapter 34, it's the story of, of Dinah, and how Jacob's sons took matters into their own hands. Their sister was taken by a neighboring tribe, was raped, and then later on, the men of that tribe said, we want, to marry, we want to marry your sister here. So what they did is they tricked them. They put them in a very compromising situation due to a ritualistic form of surgery. If you look back at it, he had the men cir- circumcised. And while they were in great pain, they came and slaughtered them. It wasn't exactly Marquis of Queensbury rules. It wasn't two sides lining up to fight a battle. You guys are incapacitated, and we're going to take our revenge on you. 
So what happened? Jacob thought, the other neighboring tribes are going to come get me now. So I need to get out of Dodge. So he packs up his family, packs up everything. They put it on camels and donkeys. They're not taking uh, a bus or loading it up in a van. This is rough going. And they started traveling south beyond Jerusalem towards Ephrath. And before they get there, Rachel goes into labor. I don't know if you've ever been in a labor and delivery room. I've been there. It was exhausting for me. It wasn't all that exhausting for my wife because she got this thing called an epidural. And she was in great pain before they administered this medication. And then she was, felt really good. She was going to be a mom. This is great. She didn't feel a thing. As for me, uh, man, it tore me up. We had been at our church picnic the day before, and I had spent all day in a horseshoe tournament pitching horseshoes with my best friend. So doing this, lugging iron for about four hours. So my arm was hurting, and I was tired. And we got home, and I remember Terry saying, Lou, I think we need to go to the hospital. The contractions have started. And I'm like, no, not now. So yeah, it was now. So we went, and I stayed up all night with her, all day. Our daughter Erin was born about 10 a.m. And I hadn't eaten, I hadn't slept. They gave me the baby, great. Washed her up. We went back to our room that afternoon. And as I'm holding my newborn daughter, I feel very strange. And I say, take the baby. I'm going to fall down. And I collapsed. I thought I was having a stroke. No. I was just tired. I was exhausted. I felt the way she should have felt. But I didn't get the epidural. So, the birth of our second child was quite different. Katie came two weeks early. I was out of state on business. I got a call that my wife was in labor. This was while I was in the middle of a presentation in a large auditorium in Orlando, Florida. It was a 16-hour drive back home from where I was. I made it a couple hours shorter, and along the way I stopped to call a close friend who was with my wife as she was giving birth. She said that Terry had a girl. But there were complications. There were difficulties with this one. It wasn't a piece of cake like the last pregnancy. I said, what's wrong with the baby? The baby's fine. Terry's not. Found out she had cancer. It was difficult. Rachel had no medicine. She had no modern transportation. She had no instant communication. Calling 911 wasn't even thought of. 
And there were complications for her, which meant there were going to be complications for the family, which meant there were going to be complications on this trip to Bethel. The journey was difficult. The labor and delivery were difficult. And they were still some distance from their new home. We're promised difficult times. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The, all these things that he's talking about are food, clothing, drink, the things that are needed to sustain life. And if you just read that verse by itself, you might think that the process of seeking God ensures prosperity. But in his next sentence, Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus doesn't promise a stress-free, trouble-free life. He assumes trouble and difficulty will exist. Seeking God in his kingdom is part of the faith journey, with the goal really being intimacy with God. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So drawing near to God is possible. Receiving a reward is possible. But the reward is not more things. God rewards you with himself. God is both the destination and the reward on this journey of faith. The second thing we see is in verse 17. That fear is real. Verse 17 says, And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. There are a lot of fear nots in the Bible. I was able to locate 33 fear nots in the English Standard Version, along with another 35 references to do not fear. And 33 more, do not be afraid. That's 101 times that people are admonished not to fear. Now, the only reason you tell somebody, do not fear, fear not, don't be afraid, is because they're afraid of something. Otherwise, you don't say that. Fear is a very real thing. People make money off of fear every Halloween when the Fright Fest on TV comes on through the month of October. People tune in because they want to get a good scare. There are movies, serial movies, that just deal with, we're going to scare you. You're going to be frightened. People are afraid for different reasons. They can fear something abstract, like an idea. Or they can fear something tangible, like a person. A common fear is the fear of not realizing a dream or desire that is very precious. 
In verse 17, the midwife says to Rachel, do not fear, for you have another son. It seems a bit odd that those two phrases should go together when you're giving birth. Do not fear, you have another son. I would think, do not fear, you'll be fine, would be more appropriate. Or congratulations, it's a boy. Might be more fitting. But the way this is worded makes you think that if Rachel had a girl, the the midwife would have said, oh darn, it's a girl. Like maybe having a girl was something that Rachel feared. And maybe she did. Earlier in Genesis 30, 24, Joseph is born. And Rachel says, may the Lord grant me another son. Not another child, another son. Some rabbinical writers assign prophetic powers to Rachel. It's thought that she knew Jacob would have 12 sons. Her prayer caused Leah's seventh child to be a daughter. And Rachel would give birth to the 12th, according to the rabbinical traditions. She feared, perhaps, that her prayer wasn't heard. She feared that as she was dying, maybe her prayer was not answered. Isn't that maybe, in the back of our minds, one of our great fears? That we pray something to God, tell him something we desire very deeply. And maybe when we pray, he just happened to have the mute button on. Maybe he doesn't hear quite right. Maybe, oh, what, what was that? And we go back and we pray it again. And we make sure that God is clear on what we're asking. We have to remind him about what we prayed. Remember how we prayed during our freshman year of high school? And don't tell me you didn't pray. Every, every time there was a math test, I prayed. But we were developing, at that age everybody does, we were developing those relationships, finding out that, okay, when you were at the junior high dance, it wasn't required that the guy stand on one side and the girl stand on the other. You're kind of discovering that you could mingle a bit. And maybe you gals were saying, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, please let him ask me out. And you guys were saying, Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, don't let me be a fool when I ask her out. We kind of start our prayer life there, focusing on us. And the thing is, neither of those prayers, the prayer that the guy said, the prayer that the girl said, could be answered until the guy did something. Maybe Rachel feared that her prayer would go unanswered. Or maybe it would be answered differently than what she asked. So during the hardest part of the delivery, and perhaps knowing Rachel's fear, the midwife says, fear not, for you do have another son. Your prayer has been answered. Fear robs us of peace, robs us of our peace with other people, robs us of our peace with God. It makes us... It gives us trepidation. It intimidates us. It makes us think and do things that, in a context that really aren't right. That's not really what reality is. It's reality covered with this veneer of fear. 
A fearful person is not a peaceful person. And the world we live in is not a peaceful place. But Jesus tells us this in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Fear is real. But Jesus transcends fear. He doesn't remove fear from us. But he gives peace on our journey to overcome the fear. Peace that reassures us that our faith is real. The third thing that we can discover is despair is not an option. In our story here, Rachel is dying, and she names her son. Verse 17 says, As her soul was departing, for she was departing, she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Ben-Hamin. Not much is written in biblical commentaries about these verses. I did a lot of research and found practically nothing, except there were commentators that commented on the name given to Benjamin or Benjamin. They focused on the theological significance. What did this mean? What's the message you know, in eternity to the church? But I found myself approaching the verse in a very different manner, looking at it from a very different aspect from the scholars and commentators. The boy's name is a compound word. It combines the word ben, meaning son, as a prefix. And then there's a suffix. Sometimes the name is hyphenated. The state of the modern Israel's first prime minister was David Ben-Gurion, which means David son of the lion cub. Gurion means son of the lion cub. Middle Eastern names carry great significance. Your name is your identity, and it's thought of someone stronger than you knows your identity, then they can exercise power over you. When Jesus encounters the possessed man in Matthew 5, the demons say, what have you to do with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? They recognized him. They were trying to call him out by name in order to gain an advantage over him. Jesus had been saying, come out of him, you unclean spirit. And when the, Jesus, and when the demons addressed Jesus, he says, what is your name? The demon replies, our name is Legion, for we are many. Now Jesus knows who he's dealing with. He knows the identity and Jesus has the advantage. Our names can sometimes lead to nicknames or shorten names for convenience. William becomes Bill. Elizabeth becomes Liz or Beth or Betty. My mother always liked the name Maureen for a daughter, but she didn't want her daughter being called Mo. So my sister got another name. She's not named Maureen. Rachel named her son Ben Onin which means son of my sorrow. It was a name given out of despair. Her prayer was answered, but she would not enjoy anything about that answered prayer. She wouldn't enjoy raising her son. 
seeing him grow up, doing all the things that a mother does with the son, that parents do in the context of a family. She knew she had no hope of raising that child and of doing all those things that she looked forward to doing. The dictionary defines despair as complete loss or absence of hope. Rachel was in a state of hopelessness. I don't know what the concept of death and life after death to the people in Jacob's time was. I just don't know. I do know that the Old Testament Jews who came after him thought of the body and the soul as one entity, one unit. When a person died, they simply slipped away. That was their thought of death. The idea of the soul or the spirit existing outside of the body was something that originated in Greek thought. So Rachel wasn't thinking, my spirit is going to go to heaven. It's going to go be with God. She saw life slipping away, being taken from her, being grasped away. She may have lost hope and despaired in those moments before she died. And she left a reminder of her despair in the name Ben-Oni. Jacob, however, wouldn't be reminded of the dark experience of losing his beloved Rachel every time he called for his son. So what he did is he changed the name to Ben-Hamin. This has been translated as son of the right hand or son of the south. The idea of the right hand carries with it the idea of honor, skill, of soundness of person, a sound identity. Since Jacob was traveling south, the name may also be a reminder of the journey that he was on. Either way, by renaming some Jesus, or excuse me, Jacob was choosing hope over despair. We can see in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 10, in Paul's writings, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power of God. The surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying. In the body of death, Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Rachel was a jar of clay. Like us, she lived in the body of death. But instead of despairing of death, Jesus' life is manifested, it's exhibited, it's displayed in our bodies even at the point when our bodies die. This is why despair is not an option. The fourth thing we discover is that we should do what needs to be done. When things happen, things need to be done. Jacob had to bury his wife. Our text tells us, so Rachel died. And she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, 
Burying the body is what needed to be done. And Jacob saw that it happened. Last week, we buried my last remaining aunt. My uncles are long gone. I never knew my grandfathers. And my grandmothers passed away more than 20 years ago. Only my mother remains of her generation in our family. My Aunt Ellen was 100 years and five months old. Her funeral arrangements were taken care of years ago, and her estate was in order. Everything was prepared for her eventual death because it needed to be done. Ellen also took care of her heavenly affairs. Her daughter, Alice, spoke about Ellen's faith in her later years. Besides the old Slovak songs that she learned in childhood and the popular tunes from the 40s and the 50s, Ellen also liked to sing hymns. As she grew older, it became more, more difficult for her to sing. Alzheimer's slowly took away her facilities, her faculties. And she would hear a familiar song and sit and smile. And the hymns always made her smile. Alice's testimony about her mom's faith needed to be heard. It needed to be done. I was a pallbearer, as were my brothers, and my brother-in-law and Ellen's two grandsons. The pastor conducted a very brief graveside service in nine-degree weather with snow falling and the wind blowing. People paid their last respects. And then they left. That needed to be done too. Rachel, like Ellen, was given back to the earth. God declares in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Paul writes about dust. In 1 Corinthians 15, he notes a contrast in verses 47 and 48 between the man of dust and the man of heaven. The man of dust is Adam. The man of heaven is Jesus. All of us begin life bearing an image of Adam, the image of dust. Those who hold on to that image are of dust, says Paul. Those who bear the image of the man of heaven are of heaven. Then in verse 49 he writes, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, have borne, past tense, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus enables us to move from the realm of dust to the realm of heaven. Because it needed to be done. He needed to do it because we can't. After Rachel was buried, Jacob erected a monument, which brings us to our fifth point. Mark the significance. Jacob did what was commonplace in his culture to mark a significant event or location. Verse 20 says, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. The author of Genesis is usually recognized as Moses. Most scholars agree on this, and if that's correct, then the pillar of Rachel's tomb 
was still standing close to 500 years after it was erected. Remember, Joseph, Jacob's son, still had to be sold into slavery, and that's another drama to get into. He had to bring his father and their family down to Egypt so the Israelites could stay there for 400 years. And then when they got out of Egypt, their GPS didn't work, and they were in the wilderness for another 40 years. So you're looking at close to somewhere between 450 and 500 years. But Moses knew that the pillar was still standing, and he knew its location. Moses, think about this, Moses never set foot in Canaan. He he never walked around Bethlehem. So where did he get his information? He might have received it from one of the 12 spies that went out to spy out the land. Maybe they said, oh, guess what? While we were out there gathering these grapes as big as our head, we saw this pillar, and it's Rachel's pillar. It's where Rachel's tomb is. Maybe he could have gotten the information from passing caravans, from traders. Doesn't matter. Moses knew where it was, and he knew what it was. The earth is full of graveyards. Some of them are forgotten, full of headstones and markers half swallowed by the ground and overgrown with foliage. Others are maintained in pristine conditions, headstones preserved by groundskeepers and guards. Think of an abandoned country church, all kind of falling over, the grass not cut, with its little parish cemetery. Maybe that's the image of the first, first graveyard. And then think of Arlington National Cemetery, where you have Marines by certain tombs, where the lawns are manicured, where the marble is white. Maybe that's the second one. Both of these testified to lives that were once lived. They testified to the truth of Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for men to die once, after that comes judgment. Marking where the dead lay buried is a significant testimony. Rachel's marker has added significance. After Jesus was born, an angel appeared to Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, appeared to him in a dream. It was the second time this angel appeared. And he told Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and run quickly, flee, get out, go to Egypt. There's great danger. What was the danger? Well, King Herod was killing all the boys in the area of Bethlehem who were two years old and under. He's trying to kill Jesus when he was young and defenseless. We read in Matthew 2, 17 through 18, then what was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel's marked grave near Bethlehem becomes significant because it becomes part of Messianic prophecy fulfilled. It takes on a greater part in the story of Jesus 
than just a common headstone or tomb. A marker, a pillar, a headstone. They're all significant because they testify to an individual who once lived. They aren't the only way to remember a person's significance. A journal left behind. Stories told in family settings. An old photo album. Today maybe that's an old Instagram account. Are all ways of testifying to the person whose life is now separated from us by death. Jesus taught us to remember his significance. Luke 22, 19 through 20 says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, the new covenant in my blood. Jesus gives us a way to remember the eternal significance of life, the eternal significance particularly of his life and death and resurrection. Finally, we discover the need to finish your journey. Nobody ever leaves someplace to go no place. Verse 20 says, Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Even if your GPS is messed up, people move towards someplace. That someplace is usually the end of their journey. I took a journey once. It was an adventure that was spur of the moment. It was in one of the summers when I was home from college. And I called my buddy Wayne. Wayne is the guy who first told me the gospel, explained the gospel to me. He's the guy that led me to the Lord. And I said, Wayne, we need to take a road trip, buddy. We drove east to see a guy named Dennis. I'd helped Dennis in the army with his journey of discipleship, with his journey of getting to know God in those intimate places. Dennis had moved back to Binghamton, New York to tend to some family issues. And I wanted to encourage him. And I asked Wayne to go with me. So we climbed in my Datsun B210, very small car. We kind of like, I don't know, slid into it more. And we got an Interstate 80 going east. And we started going pretty far into Pennsylvania. And sometime along the way, Wayne says, show me the map. I said, I don't have one. Wayne was not amused. He said, we're going to New York and you don't have a map. Now, this was when people used maps. Okay, I said, well, there's signs. There's signs all along the interstate. We know where we're going. All we have to do is follow the signs. So we did. We followed the signs along Interstate 80, up Interstate 81, and we got to Binghamton, New York. We didn't have cell phones back then, so we had to call Dennis, and Dennis didn't answer. We really spent all night trying to get hold of the guy, and we finally did, and we had breakfast with him, and we encouraged him over breakfast. 
about what he was trying to accomplish, what he was trying to do within his family unit. And then we left, headed back to Cleveland. And we didn't have a map, but we got back to Cleveland. Jacob was on a journey south. He began his journey as Jacob, but he ended it as Israel. Did you notice that in the passage? He began as the supplanter, the one who follows on another's heel. He ended as the one who wrestled with God. Israel means, may God prevail. It's Jacob's covenant name. He didn't need a map to have that happen. Jacob may have realized at this point that everything was in place for God for God to fulfill the promises that he had made in his covenant. There would be no other sons. He would play a declining role as God's story moved forward. The story would shift from Jacob, and it would shift to Jacob's sons. Curiously, they're not called Jacob's sons. They're called the sons of Israel, the sons of the covenant. One journey was ending. And another one was beginning. Jim Downing was one of the founding members of the Navigators. Jim led an incredible life that ended last week at the age of 105. Jim was on board the battleship West Virginia at Pearl Harbor. He was the oldest surviving Pearl Harbor veteran. He became a Navy lieutenant and captain of his own ship during the war. And as captain, he appointed himself honorary ship's chaplain. When his wife, Marina, passed away after 68 years of marriage, Jim said he wasn't starting a new chapter in his life, but a whole new book. The book on Jacob was ending. The book on his 12 sons is beginning. In a similar way, excuse me, a similar way that happens to a new Christian. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus allows us to close our old book of life in the flesh and start a new book of life of faith. We finish one journey and start a new one. The Lenten season has begun. And as Lent begins, we can look to Jesus, our example, the author and finisher of our faith, to see how these six things played out in his life, particularly from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. The world looks at the end of Jesus' life as something tragic. A good teacher was killed. Or maybe a religious zealot was put away. Or maybe a madman was finally silenced. The world looks at anything but this. Jesus had a difficult journey that began in the glory of God's presence to the humility of a major to humiliation on a cross. It was a journey made difficult by spiritual, 
religious and political opposition. It was made difficult by obtuse disciples who sometimes just didn't get it and the acute pain of a friend turned traitor. It was so difficult because it was so very necessary. Fear was real. Herod, the Pharisees, and the Romans all feared Jesus. Not just what he could do, but what he represented. He preached the kingdom of God. He employed no diplomacy. He commanded no armies. Yet, he wielded great power that they recognized. Jesus probably experienced some sort of fear when he cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the terror of separation, terror that he didn't own. It's terror that's rightfully ours. Despair was never an option. Jesus never left hopeless even as he was condemned by a kangaroo court, even as the flesh was torn from his body by the scourge, even as the nails were driven into his hands and feet, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth. Instead of pleading for mercy in painful, weak whimpers, which most crucified men did, he shouted loudly, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He did what needed to be done. He was wounded so we could be healed. He died to pay the price that we rightfully owe. He conquered hell and death for us because we were bound to them. He was raised victorious to eternal life so he could give it to us. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, becoming the eternal Ben-Hamin. He marked the significance. The significance isn't marked by the crosses we display on our jewelry, or on our bumpers, or on our back windshields, or on any other personal items. It's not marked by a holy site, supposedly the tomb in Jerusalem, the significance is marked when we take the bread and the wine and remember his journey the way he taught us to do. He finished his journey so far. He waits in heaven for the moment when he will do as Jacob did and pitch, and pitch our tent, the heavenly tent of our immortal body and we will be with him forever. It's written in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the air together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I said at the beginning of this message that I was moved to encourage your faith. I can speak the words, but it's up to God to encourage you. God is our encouragement. He's our great source 
of peace. He's our great salvation. I hope that these words are used by God to encourage your faith. This passage is reflective of a theme that echoes throughout the Bible. Flesh to spirit, journey to journey, life to new life. It can be seen throughout the Bible. You can find it in places you might not think you'd find it, like Genesis 35. We have a great and loving God who desires for us to see it in the pages of his word and in the fellowship of community. He longs for you to see it and believe it so that when your journey is finished, you will finish in the presence of Jesus. That's my prayer for all of us, and especially for those of us who are here today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a great salvation that you've given us, for Jesus being the author and finisher of our faith, for doing what needed to be done so that we can finish our journey in your presence. Father, it's my prayer that all of us here will be in the presence of Jesus together and we'll be able to say it was a great journey. In Jesus' name, amen.